listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Give your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 14, reading in Jesus' name. And I invite you to stand as we read God's Word together this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which I now, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of my sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Heavenly Father, today as we are here in your house to learn and grow in fellowship, there are people who have fears that are very real, fears of the loss of a loved one, fears of a recent health diagnosis, fears of being forgotten and alone, fears of being found out and a secret sin being exposed. So Lord, today may the law cut deeply into our hearts and we see our sin and need of a Savior But by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, may we not stay there, but may we see the grace given to us because of Jesus on the cross. And Lord, may our faith be strengthened and created and nurtured by the proclamation of your word. May our fears become less in light of the amazing grace and gift given to us on Calvary. So Lord, work among us today. Use me, a broken yet redeemed sinner, to proclaim your word in a way that you can be lifted high and the cross be clear. Lord, now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Fifty years ago, researchers at John Hopkins University started asking kids ages 8 to 10 what their greatest fears were. Fifty years ago, the top five reasons, number one, were animals. Number two was being in a dark room. Number three was high places. Number four was clowns. I knew I was in good company on that one. 
Number five was loud noises. A couple years ago when they did this survey, these are now the top five things that kids are afraid of. Keep in mind, these are kids eight, nine, and ten. Number one, they're afraid that their parents will get divorced. Number two, they're afraid of war. Number three, they were afraid of COVID. Number four, global warming. Number five, someone they loved being killed. The burdens of kids has changed. Keep in mind, this was a broad survey of thousands of kids in elementary school in third and fourth grade. The things that they worry about are perhaps somewhat different than the worries that kids had 50 years ago. The world has always been a fearful place ever since sin entered it back in Genesis chapter 3. No longer were things perfect for Adam and Eve, our first parents. The Garden of Eden was a perfect place, but sin had changed things. Death occurred, loss and anger, pride, jealousy, and fear were now all present. No longer did the voice of God only bring comfort. In Genesis 3.10, what did Adam say? He said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Fear is a part of living in this world that we live in. Fear was there from the fall and will continue until the Lord comes again. Today we're going to walk through this text almost more in a Bible study format, verse by verse. I pray that God will open our eyes and our hearts as we see the grand narrative of Scripture that we see Jesus in each of these verses. Verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. A little bit of context, the apostle Paul is writing to a younger follower of Jesus named Timothy. Paul wrote this letter when he was in prison for the second time in about 65 A.D., 30 or so years after Jesus' death and resurrection. The gospel had been spreading like wildfire across the entire world. From the initial disciples and the followers when Jesus ascended into heaven, now tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have heard the gospel and believed across the Middle East, across Asia, into Europe and Africa even in these 30 years since the Lord had gone to heaven. The gospel was spreading. All but John of the remaining 11 disciples, though, had been killed or would soon be killed as a martyr for preaching the gospel. The Apostle Paul himself is in prison. He, too, soon to be killed for his faith. Context-wise, and this is important for the Apostle Paul and the tone that he takes, a lot of people had abandoned him in prison. Some of those who were closest to him no longer wanted to be associated with him. In this time, Paul's memories of, of Timothy, this younger follower of Jesus that he knew and loved, and Timothy's sincerity and devotion are touching to Paul. Paul knows that he will die, die soon, and he writes a message to Timothy. Paul wants him to stand firm in the faith that they've learned and taught and grown in together. Paul asked Timothy to bring his books and parchments so they can keep studying and learning until the end. Second Timothy is, is a very personal letter. It's a final letter from Paul to someone that he had served alongside of for 15 or 20 years. He wants Timothy to continue to be faithful, to trust in God's grace, even when there's things to be afraid of. The expression of my beloved child in verse 1 and 2 is more meaningful and personal in the Greek than we can translate it into the English. It's, it's more personal than saying son. It's more personal than saying the name. It has connotations of almost a, a nickname. In my family, all of my kids have their names, but they all have nicknames too. I know the Alverson family is the same way, and a lot of them here too. Hey, T-Bird. Hi, Titus. How are you? We don't know how it got started. My youngest, Titus, he somehow became T-Bird when he was little. 
And then sometimes T, sometimes Ty, and sometimes, even though he doesn't love it, Birdie. He'll answer to all of them. And he's shaking his head. He did give me permission to talk about this. But when we love people, we have nicknames. And this verse in the original language has connotations of someone that the Apostle Paul is close to and loves. And to say my beloved child is a mark of a spiritual father, of a blood brother, a family. This letter is certainly for Timothy. It's certainly for the early church. But it's also for us. One last note from the beginning, all of 13 letters that Paul wrote start with a familiar theme, and that's God's grace. Every single one talks about the grace given to us, and they all end in a similar matter, and that's certainly true in this passage as well. Verses 3 and 4, Paul writes to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. The personal nature of this letter continues. Paul and Timothy had preached the word together for nearly 20 years at the time of this writing. Paul had first met Timothy in about AD 50 on a second missionary journey. Paul and Timothy had served the Lord together for years at this point. Paul would have been nearly 50 and Timothy in his early 30s when they first met. Now Paul is close to 70, Timothy in his 40s, and they had served together a long time. Acts chapter 16 tells us that Paul took Timothy with him to preach the gospel in several years, and Timothy had been the pastor at a lot of places, in Corinth, in Thessalonica, in in Philippi. He had accompanied Paul to Ephesus, and soon or now, Timothy would have been the bishop over many churches in the city of Ephesus, one of the main trade centers at this time. Verse 3 tells us that Paul is thankful and trusting the Lord in spite of his imprisonment. In the midst of his suffering, God's grace is sufficient for Paul, and he's praying for his beloved spiritual son, Timothy. In verse 4, we're reminded of the spiritual bond that exists as we serve the Lord together. In God's church, he desires for us to come alongside of each other and labor together in proclaiming the gospel. This verse is, is powerful in that it reminds us that if we want a community of believers, if we want to feel like we belong, if we want to have fellowship with God's people, the way that God has designed for that to happen is to serve together. In a few weeks, we have Vacation Bible School coming up at this church, and those of us who have served over the years know that there is a special kinship and bond that happens as we serve. Some of you have been serving the Lord together in this church for longer than I've been alive, and you think back on the times that the Lord has worked and His grace has been sufficient, and He has moved and things have happened. That's how God desires for His family to work, to love, to grow together, to serve together, and in the midst of that, He creates bonds. May we join Paul in his longing for Timothy that I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Who here wants to build a community and fellowship like that? By God's grace, may that be true here at his church at Elam. Verses 5 and 6. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. We know from the book of Acts that Timothy came from a family where his mother and grandmother were believers. His father was Greek. And the scriptures don't explicitly say that his father was not a believer, but it also doesn't say that he was. And based upon this passage, it was likely that his grandmother and mother followed the Lord, but his father 
did not. A difficult thing for any man, a difficult thing for Timothy in the first century especially. Paul is not saying here that it's the faith of his mother or his grandmother that saves him. No, we know from Scripture faith is individual, but it's acknowledging the work and the legacy that God did in his family's life and how that had been instrumental in Timothy's life as well. God can use us in the spiritual lives of others to create faith, can't he? How many times have we sat in a Bible study and learned to grow alongside of other believers and we take their insights and lessons and we say, praise God for that person. May we have that in our families. May we have that in our church. There's a lesson here in why we spend time in the Word together. Why we go to church, learning, reading, growing. It's a great gift. Verse 6 is, is powerful, and it's getting to the most important and meatiest part of the text. One of the most important parts of reading God's Word is to understand that the context matters. It's a dangerous thing to take one verse out of the Bible and make it say something that it doesn't say. So in the context here, we have to ask who is speaking and what are they talking about. Verse 6 can be retched out of context by some who say there's some almost mystical or magical thing that happens in the laying on of hands and that only in that can certain spiritual gifts be bestowed. That's not the context. That's not what this verse says. It's talking about how God's grace moves in us and through us. What are the first few words of verse 6? For this reason. That means this verse is tied back to the context that was previously said here. God was using Paul to tell Timothy and us that this faith that dwells in us is fanned as we fellowship and as we serve together. This faith is a gift that grows as we hear God's word and respond to it. This faith grows as we encourage, us, as encourage others and us and as we love others and as His grace moves among us. Verse 6 is directly tied back to verse 5. Faith dwells in us and is fanned by the proclamation of the word that we hear and that we read together. That's good. That's really good. You know what else is good is that this growing flame of faith helps us not be afraid. Verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The context here again matters, the word for. This connects back to what had already been said about grace and faith. The flame of faith was burning bright even as believers were being killed and persecuted for their faith. Paul is in prison, soon to die, and Timothy would face the same fate in the future. And yet, this message is proclaimed to Timothy and to the first century church and to us that God's Spirit in us allows us to know that we can have peace and love and self-control. There are many things for us to fear in this world. Being afraid is a part of being human. I'm not talking about the foolishness that may come from watching a bad movie or jumping out from behind a wall and scaring someone in jest. I'm talking about the soul-crushing weight that can happen of our deepest fears as we consider our loved ones, the state maybe of our country or the world, the lost, the things that we read on the news. These things, if we dwell upon them, can become such a weight that we can barely bear it. And the anxiety and the worry and the fear can overtake us. I wasn't afraid of many things until I had kids. I remember my brother Jed and I climbing up on top of the roof of the barn, making a parachute, in quotes, out of a tarp, and jumping off into a pile of hay. Mom, if you're watching, I don't think I've ever told you this story. Um, we were fine, but there was no fear. I remember climbing to the very top of a pine tree. We're talking this and swaying in the wind and having no fear. I remember jumping over the side of a fishing boat just because I was bored and wanted to swim to the shore. Kids, don't do this type of thing. It wasn't that I was being smart but I didn't have a lot of fear. 
And then I got married and was blessed with kids. And perhaps some of you can identify with this. The things that you worry about begins to change. I rarely worry about my own future. I worry, candidly, about the future my kids will face. And you don't have to have kids to have a deep abiding love for someone. It can be nieces and nephews, neighbors, relatives, friends. But to worry about other over yourself can be a very heavy weight. Many of you know the story of our son Jude. During COVID, he had COVID and was fine. And then a few weeks later, he had a severe post-COVID reaction. I'll never forget hearing from my wife saying that they were on a helicopter to the children's hospital because his body was shutting down. In that moment, I never recalled fearing something as much as I did in that moment. And yet God's grace was so powerful and so sufficient because in my mind, the verse that he gave me over and over again in my head was Isaiah 41.10. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. And in that moment, though there was fear and there was terror and there was anxiety that I wouldn't wish upon anybody, there was at the same time a peace that comes from knowing the Lord loves our loved ones more than we ever could, that his grace covers and protects. The ending of that story was wonderful. God healed Jude, and he's completely normal today. And we praise God for that. But had God healed Jude by taking him home to heaven instead, God would have still been just as good. And his grace would have still been just as sufficient. And in the midst of those moments of of fear and anxiety and worry, God's still small voice speaks to us and says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Our deepest fears won't ever entirely go away this side of heaven. For the longest time, I would wake up in the middle of the night and go check on Jude just to make sure that he was okay. And friends, God understands this, and he offers comfort and peace and grace in the midst of those things too. Friends, there is no guilt or shame for anyone here this morning who struggles with anxiety or fear. What are your fears? Maybe you fear being alone. Maybe your heart aches because of the loss of a loved one and you have this deep down wondering who you will lose next. Maybe you sit at home feeling the world, the church, and your family has forgotten you and fear creeps in. Maybe you're a teenager deeply afraid that someone will find out about something you did. Maybe you live in fear of people knowing who you really are. No seven-step plan, no three-step process this morning to follow. Just a simple and calm assurance that God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power, of love, and of self-control. Note that this passage doesn't say you have to muster up this lack of fear or courage yourself. It doesn't say you have to name it and claim it. It doesn't say you have to work harder to have it. It doesn't even say that you have to feel it to be true. It's a stated fact for those of us who know the Lord that we have this spirit and it is in us and God works through that whether we feel it or not. As we focus on the gospel, our fears and worries are not eliminated, but they become less and less in the cosmic picture of how God loves and redeems his people who trust in him. These trials and struggles and fears are but a momentary affliction, the Bible tells us. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full 
in his wonderful grace. And the things of earth will go strangely dim. Amen? Amen. I want to be clear that following Jesus does not mean that we'll have an easy life or a life without fear. If we think that following Jesus will make your life better in an earthly only sense or we buy into the false heresy of the prosperity gospel that's preached by Joel Olstein, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, Joyce Myers, all these people that point to prosperity on earth, that if you believe this, you can have a better life here, that if you believe this, you can have wealth and riches. That is not the message of the Bible because fundamentally our home as Christians is not of this world. Our citizenship is not even tied to a country. Our citizenship is in heaven because of Jesus. And the gospel is not a gospel without fear. It's not a gospel about prosperity. It's a gospel that says God's grace is sufficient and he's with us and we have power of a sound mind and trust because of Jesus. The Christian life is a life where we die to self so that the cross can be lifted high. The gospel is not about earthly goods or things. It's about Jesus. We know that the suffering, the fears, the trials and tribulations in this world are only temporary. The heartbeat of the gospel is why we're in the, that says when we're in the midst of fear, we can join the Apostle Paul in saying, God is with me. I have his grace, his power, his love, and his self-control. Not because of me, but because of Jesus. I've been so blessed by this sermon series that Pastor Luke has been doing about broken people. Haven't we all? What a gift that we see these people that God used in mighty and powerful ways. They did some great things. Friends, didn't they do some awful things too? Some of these heroes of the faith, we look and say, they murdered people. They committed adultery. They, They didn't trust. They had fear. They had all these problems. And yet God used them. And here's the most remarkable thing about how God's grace works. There is no special measure of grace given to these heroes of the faith. The same faith that they had, God has given us because of Jesus. So in those moments of fear and trial, when we say, I can't do this, we can't, but God can. In those moments when we say, I don't know how I'm going to stand up under this anxiety, this fear, and this pressure, just as David faced Goliath, and God worked through him, just as Paul faced imprisonment, and Timothy would soon, we can stand and know that because God is with us, and this world is not our home, that it will be okay, and our fears can become less and go by the side. This boldness and fearlessness that Paul had is a gift given to him, and a gift available to us. God's word comes to us and creates faith in our hearts to believe that this is true. Verses 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in sufferings for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This white-hot flame that we mentioned earlier, this flame of faith that can help us not fear, how do we fuel that flame? By remembering that we are chosen and called by God before the very creation of this world. God knew that Adam and Eve would sin and that every person's sense would fall into sin and we would need a Savior. God knew that our sin would separate us from Him and that sin leads to death. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. He loved us so much that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Check out the second half of verse 9. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages begin. Before the ages, before time even started, God knew that we would need a Savior. Before time began, God knew whose names would be written in the Lamb's book of life. 
We don't need to get off on a theological tangent here. This verse is best understood through the context that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And God uses us to proclaim that message to the world around us. Scripture is so clear that God's grace is available to all who will freely believe and receive that gift. This verse ties back to verse 7 so beautifully too. We need not fear because God's grace has been given to us because he knew we would need it in ways that we don't even know that we need it. God's turned his face towards you before he created the heavens. God who created the universe dwells in you through the gift of faith. This same God, the same God who cast the universe into existence, sent his only son to live and die for you. This makes our fears and worries become understood in the light of eternity. Verse 10. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I love that part. Abolished death and brought life. It doesn't get any better than that. Our bodies they may kill, but truth abideth still. In this world we will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Verses 11 and 12. For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, for which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I am not ashamed. This is the power of God showing here. He's going to be there. He is powerful to guard. And Paul says, even though I'm in chains, even though I'm in prison, I've been beaten, I'm not afraid, and you don't have to be either. This is God's grace at work. This is the reminder that we need God's grace poured out on us each and every day as we read the Word. Fears of health concerns, of abandonment, of trauma from our backgrounds, of hurting someone's feelings and them abandoning us, the deepest, darkest fears that we never vocalize to anyone in our life. These fears, too, can be cleansed and covered by the blood of Jesus and washed over by the grace given to us through the Word. This is not a one-time event. This is something that doesn't only happen on Sunday morning. It happens every time that we read the Word. It happens every time that we pick this up and read it in our homes as we listen to it, as we fellowship together and talk about the things of God. This, this Word throw, goes through our veins and into our hearts and out to the world around us. This Word will change us and help us see that this Word, this world is a temporary place and that our home and citizenship is in heaven. Verses 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I love how this text ends because it's a simple and clear direction to be a person of the word. Follow the sound words. This doesn't mean we have to legalistically read our Bible a certain amount of time every day, though you will be blessed if you do so. It doesn't mean you have to be in change like Paul and Timothy would soon be. It doesn't mean that you have to have a Pollyanna attitude and smile in the midst of fears and struggles. No, it's a directive that points back to the Holy Spirit's working and the work of God. I love the simple words in verse 14. By the Holy Spirit. You may fear for the health and safety of the ones that you love. By the Holy Spirit, God comes to us through his word and says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. You may worry and doubt, but God tells us in Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Maybe you sit here today and you worry about the future of our state, our country, the world. 
Matthew 6.34. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Because Jesus will. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I fear my sins are truly forgiven. Isaiah 12, 2 through 3. Surely God is my salvation. I will put my trust in him and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. I love this last part. What's the contrast of fear? It's joy. With joy we'll draw from the waters, from the wells of salvation. In 2 Timothy 1, 7. For our God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this text that points us to our complete inadequacy. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastorkjolhaug at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.